Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly. And it's a very powerful metaphor for our time. My guest today is Dr. Eben Alexander, who is a pioneering scientist and thought leader in consciousness studies, who's been a guest of all sorts of interviews, including Dr. Oz and Oprah and other media programs. His most recent book, which he wrote with his partner, Karen Newell, is called Living in a Mindful Universe, a neurosurgeon's journey into the heart of consciousness. And it's received many accolades from many scientists around the world, and, and including myself, who study the mind-body question and the nature of consciousness. And his earlier books were Proof of Heaven, a neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife, and The Map of Heaven, How Science, Religion, and Ordinary People Are Proving the Afterlife. And they've collectively spent more than two years at the top of the New York Times and international bestseller lists. So welcome, Eben. We last saw each other physically, I think, probably at the Beyond the Brain in, in 2019. But that's true, David. And thanks so much for having me on. It's always great to be with you. And uh, yes, I have very fond memories of uh, our Beyond the Brain meeting uh, a few years ago, and uh, that was a fantastic conference. I love all the efforts you've been involved in, and so it's great to be here in uh, conversation today. Well, it's been going for a while, as you know. So let's start with a shaping moment involving your choice of work, because you come from a medical family, I believe. I do. My uh, Part of my uh, history is that I was adopted, and my adoptive family was uh, very welcoming and honoring of all my hopes and dreams. I couldn't have been more blessed to be adopted into that family. My father in that family was a globally renowned neurosurgeon, and uh, that was very important in my life. He had a very, uh, uh, you know, his knowledge of physics, cosmology, neuroscience was extraordinary. And yet the interesting thing to me, especially in looking back on it, was that he had a very strong belief in uh, the reality of a loving personal God and the power of prayer. Uh, in fact, I still have at my bedside the little pocket Bible that he had in his pocket as a uh, combat surgeon during the Second World War in the Pacific Theater. He was there for about two and a half years overseas, and that little Bible was his companion. And for him, there was never any conflict between his knowledge of that personal knowledge of that loving God and his work in science and in healing people. Now, like many who grew up in the 60s and 70s, like I did, uh, I always knew science was a pathway to truth. And of course, for many years, because of my training and kind of my focus, I believed in materialism or physicalism, the notion that only the physical world exists. That's kind of the conventional grounds of our training. And yet that uh, materialist view should have been overturned by the advent of quantum physics 100 years ago. And yet it's taken a long time for us to kind of come to a deep understanding of this relationship between quantum physics and consciousness. But my father was extremely influential in my life and uh, uh, 
that that was kind of an arduous pathway, but uh, at any rate, he, his influence was dramatic and, and continues to this day, even though he left the physical plane in 2004. Yes, yeah, so so that that was a kind of track that was almost um, inevitable in a sense. And then when you were younger, maybe at medical school, um, did you have other influential mentors or teachers who gave you some good advice? Well, I did. I had some wonderful mentors, although it was mainly about healing. I remember, in fact, one of my uh, rounding physicians when I was a second year medical student on Osler Ward at Duke uh, Medical Center was Robert Lefkowitz. Uh, and he was a very uh, brilliant thinker. He ended up winning a Nobel Prize. So uh, obviously the world thought he was brilliant too. But uh, uh, I remember one of his most profound lessons early on was he would ask us every day about our patient and why they were still in the hospital because he knew that hospitals can be dangerous places. And he taught me that your first duty is to get somebody safe and you know safely out of the hospital. And uh, that was a big lesson to me uh, for starters. But yes, there were uh, many influential people along the way, but uh, kind of ultimately, I think my biggest teacher was my own personal experience uh, that happened back in 2008. Yes. uh, Tell us a bit more about that, because this is the pivotal point of your life, isn't it? Well, it really is. And I think it's also important, uh, just a a little interesting synchronicity about that career in neurosurgery is that uh, back in the 1980s, when I was doing my residency work in Duke in neurosurgery, I wasn't sure what field I wanted to go into, the part of neurosurgery. There are many, neurosurgery has many different facets. But I was very much interested in vascular neurosurgery, going after aneurysms, arteriovenous malformations, the blood vessel problems within the brain that can be so uh, damaging and deadly. And that's what I spent two years of research on in the mid-80s and did a fellowship in England up in Newcastle uh, in clipping aneurysms. I mean, this was a deep focus for me. Interesting that, that many years later, I discover, you know, in 2000, as I reported the book Proof of Heaven, I found that uh, my birth parents had actually gotten married. But not only that, the story that came clear to me in years after 2000, when I first found out that my birth family actually existed, not just my birth mother, but uh, I found that, uh, in fact, my birth family was riddled with a biological predisposition to aneurysms. In other words, uh, it was my... Uh, and my sister, a birth sister, who was not supposed to know of my existence, you know, her, my parents had kept it all secret from everybody. And yet her grandmother had told her about my existence in 1987. And then because she knew that my birth mother's father, my biological grandfather on the maternal side, had died of a subarachnoid hemorrhage in 1966, and that my birth mother's younger sister had died of a subarachnoid hemorrhage from aneurysm in 1978, my birth sister knew I needed to be advised of this. And even though she wasn't really sure of my existence, she reached out to the children's home and said uh, that there was this family predisposition. And so she connected the dots so that when I contacted the children's home in the year 2000, looking for my family of origin, it was only because of that predisposition to aneurysms that had driven my sister to give that information to be passed on to me for my own health reasons. So to me, that's a gigantic synchronicity that, you know, 13 years earlier, back in the mid 80s, I was making all these big decisions about going into neurosurgery. 
and doing vascular neurosurgery, and then to find out, you know, 13, 14 years later, that that is the whole reason that I was able to trace back to find my birth family anyway, because there would have been no way to find them without that. So this extraordinary, we explain a little bit of that in our third book, Living in a Mindful Universe. I talk about that uh, massive synchronicity in my life about career choice and uh, all of that. But the adoption wound, uh, you know, the abandonment, every bit of it worthy of love. I mean, all those issues set up by my adoption story uh, and then the neurosurgical interest in brain, mind, consciousness. I mean, it all coalesced in my near-death experience, which is what we're now referring to that occurred back in 2008. And that was all in the setting of a severe gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis that involved all lobes of my brain. And the reason that that case, of course, is so important to the scientific community is because the medical details, which are not only what I present in Proof of Heaven, but also are clarified and validated and strengthened in a case report on my medical records that came out September 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, a case report by Dr. Serbi Khanna, Lauren Moore, and Bruce Grayson. And that case report makes it very clear that my brain was far too damaged to have supported any kind of dream or hallucination. So that is the big mystery. That's what stunned me the more I learned about my NDE, uh, learned about my medical situation as when I was recovering from the NDE. And that really is kind of the extraordinary part of it was my brain had no way of just kind of giving me this phenomenal experience. So you have to really reach beyond materialist notions of brain creates consciousness to derive the, the matter, the, the content of that spiritual experience. And also the authors made very clear, uh, and they were challenged by the peer review editors of the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases. How do you explain this case? It's unprecedented to have somebody this ill end up making a full recovery after spending a week in coma due to the severe bacterial infection. And they explained, the authors of the paper said it's because he had a near-death experience. And that was sufficient for the peer reviewers to say, okay, now we have an explanation. And that should wake people up. The scientific community is waking up to the fact that these kinds of spiritual encounters can actually have a very concrete effect on healing. And certainly in the NDE literature, there are other cases, in addition to mine, of people who have had extraordinary healing, like Anita Morjani. That's just who I was thinking of. I was going to mention. Yeah, advanced Mm -hmm. lymphoma. And she basically healed herself through the spiritual experience, or Dr. Mary C. Neal, over 30-minute warm water drowning, kayaking in Chile in the late 1990s. And any, any physician knows that over 30 minutes of warm water drowning, your brain is irreversibly damaged. And yet she came was brought to the surface dead, was resuscitated, uh, ended up having a fantastic recovery, going back to work as an orthopedic surgeon. And then she presents her story, just as I have in Anita, I've presented with both of them on many stages around the world. And this is really about the true power of healing that comes into our purview as we come to a deeper understanding of the spiritual realm, the power of mind over matter. Really, it just takes placebo effect, which medicine has acknowledged as you know a gold standard for looking at any new therapeutic modality, and just takes it up to much uh, higher levels uh, beyond spontaneous remission of cancers and infections to these truly miraculous healings that we find in the setting of near-death experiences. Well, it certainly does. And, and of course, your, your direct experience in that respect really turned your understanding of the relationship between brain and consciousness on its head. 
Well, it absolutely does. And, you know, for me, that's a tremendous gift. But I also, for me, it then demands a, a much higher quality of explanation. You know, the materialist scientist in me before my coma, you know, as I explained in the book Proof of Heaven, I tend to dismiss these stories, sweep them under the rug, pretend they were just hallucinations. Well, to believe that uh, these visions that people have when they leave the physical world are hallucinations is a, a major mistake if you want to come to any understanding of truth about the nature of reality. And of course, as most neuroscientists or uh, people interested in mind and the mind-brain relationship will tell you, uh, materialism has never really gone anywhere at answering the deep and profound questions about the nature of conscious phenomenal experience. And we really need a much larger theater of operations. And that's basically where the scientific world is heading today. And I would say the last few decades have seen extraordinary progress along these lines of trying to come up with a, a more facile explanation of human experience that includes all of these kind of exotic uh, kind of bookends of life type experiences like NDEs or shared death experiences, which are similar to NDEs, but in, in fact usually happen in very healthy people, like a loved one who might be a thousand miles away when their mother is, is in the dying process, and yet the mother's soul will come through and take the bystander soul even to the point of witnessing a full-blown life review before the bystander soul comes back to this world. That, that is called a shared death experience. And I heard many of those mm -hmm. accounts back when I was first giving talks about my experience, and I didn't know what to call them. That was back in uh, 2010 when I first started sharing my experience, two years before Proof of Heaven came out. And people would uh, always come up to me after these talks, say, I've never told anybody this before, but they would share their story. It might have happened 30 or 50 years earlier, and they remembered it perfectly. And most of those were near death uh, or uh, kind of deathbed vision type experiences. But some of them were shared death, uh, where their soul would be whisked along on these journeys. And it was only after I read Raymond's, Raymond Moody's book, Glimpses of Eternity, that I think came out in 2011, that I uh, started realizing, okay, there's a name for these. But all of these uh, kind of extraordinary experiences are a tremendous gift to us as human beings. And they should not just be swept under the rugs. We should understand that any kind of paradigm shift in a scientific paradigm, as Thomas Kuhn wrote back in the 1960s, involves this accumulation of evidence that just sooner or later, those jagged edges of knowledge, the stuff we're tempted to sweep under the rug, are really the clues to how to move to the next level of understanding. Mm, and absolutely. I think that's what our modern world is doing, is accepting these experiences and compiling them, analyzing them, and then trying to run with, well, how do we get a theoretical model that can really explain this? And that's why I think a lot of the work that you do in the scientific and medical network, GalileoCommission.org and other group, scientific groups are extremely important in this revolution because these are the true scientists of the modern era in trying to help humanity understand its relationship with the universe at large. And therefore, the nature of reality in epistemological terms, how we know things, but also ontologically, you know, that the, 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 all the great spiritual teachers will insist that there are other realms of reality that are more real than the physical. And so, well, so it's a whole picture, isn't it? Well, it is. And that is probably one of the most extraordinary things that to me was the big shocker was this world 
coming back to it after my coma, this world was dark and murky and dreamlike. That world was absolutely astonishing, real, detailed, vivid, alive, and meaningful in profound ways that are still changing my life as I go. And so that is really the gift of it all. And and really for uh, materialists to just deny all this, is, they are cheating themselves tremendously. Imagine the the chagrin of getting to the end of your life as a hardcore materialist. And then as you're leaving this physical world and your loved ones come to greet you, you realize all of that spiritual stuff was true and you wasted your whole life denying it and not living to further your soul growth. I mean, to me, that would be the biggest curse of all is to just waste an entire lifetime pursuing cul-de-sacs that have nothing to do with the nature of reality. Yeah, one can understand why that happens because of the power of the collective and the training and the mindset. But I just wanted to ask you, Eben, do you happen to know the extraordinary experience of Sir Auckland Geddes from the 1930s? You know, I think I, I'm certainly familiar with the name, but I would love your refreshing my memory on the Well, story. I'll just, I'll just m- mention a few of the features because they're, they're, he was professor of medicine at McGill. He was in a, in a similar situation. And he was also a UK cabinet minister, so he was an extraordinary man. It's it's in, and then he gave he gave a talk to the Edinburgh Medical Society. It was the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh in about 1935, and he called it a view from the grandstand. And he then he re, he relayed this as a third person experience that had happened to a good friend of his, and only much later did he. Uh, say that actually it had happened to him. And, and so there was a, a big kind of step there. But his his experience was of losing consciousness and then finding himself in an A consciousness, as he called, which had 360 vision and could go anywhere that um, he willed. And so he was able partly to be in the in the bedroom where he had fallen ill and partly to be at the hospital. And his wife phones the hospital and says, gives her what's called a case report. And uh, he say so he sees the, he said, I, I heard the doctor say, or rather saw him think, which is a very interesting turn, right. of, turn of phrase. And the doctor came and gave him an injection and he was just beginning to understand the dynamics of this more real reality uh, when he was pulled back into the body. And he said, and I had, this is the B consciousness um, still in the body. Um, I had a glimmer of consciousness suffused with pain. And so this to me is a very strong uh, indicator of what has now become to be known as the kind of filter theory or the filter metaphor for the relationship between brain and consciousness. Well, absolutely. And I would say this is something that we harp on all the time in our workshops, presentations, certainly discuss at length in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, where we make the argument for objective idealism. And that is the notion of this primordial mind. Uh, And I think that um, the more we understand about that, the better, because filter theory is absolutely at the heart of it. And that is viewing the brain as a filter that allows in consciousness, but in a very limited fashion. 
Uh, that limited fashion gives us this apparent sense of self and also of here and now. And yet, you know, in meditation and in NDEs and in, in uh, psychedelic experiences with entheogens, et cetera, we can experience stepping into consciousness beyond just that local consciousness that's stuck in a, an apparent here, now, and sense of self. And that's where I think we start to appreciate, just as in the story that you just re related, uh, he was aware of the doctor's thoughts. That's what happens, because what we're realizing is that there is a mental realm, I would call it, the mental layer of the universe. And and using the word mental could easily be replaced with the word spiritual once you expand your mm. kind of understanding. But in other words, you cannot simply pretend that we're these local physical beings, material only, with a brain that's material only in a here now that's generating this phenomenal experience. Uh, because of our abilities to kind of step outside of time, especially, for example, when you're liberated from the shackles of the physical brain and body during a life review uh, in a near-death experience, that's a very broad kind of experiencing of consciousness where you witness things not only from your perspective, but from the emotional perspective of those around you who were affected by your uh, actions and even your thoughts. And that's Indeed. why I think that the life... The life review becomes a very important demonstration of really two major factors. One is this boundary of self is it serves a certain fiction that allows a drama to unfold with us seeing ourselves as independent, separate beings. But essentially, we're all sharing the dream of the one mind. And that becomes apparent from that higher perspective. The higher perspective can be achieved not only through NDEs, but through meditation and centering prayer. And I often argue that those are much more effective and efficient ways to kind of meld into that primordial mind than psychedelics or entheogens, because I believe there's too much of a biochemical splash from the entheogens. And I strongly urge people to pursue meditation, which I believe is a much pure route when it's applied on a regular basis to cultivating our relationship with that primordial mind. But really, this is where so much of modern consciousness work is going, is this notion of the one mind. And I would certainly attribute a, a, a lot of my understanding to my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Larry Dossey, who wrote that book, One Mind. Uh, I think it came out in about uh, 2013 or so. That book is extraordinary. And I know in Pim Van Lommel's uh, contribution to the Bigelow Institute essay contest, he won second place. And at the end of his essay, he's making the argument for how all of this is supporting this notion of the one mind and brain is filter. And he lists the best scientific resources for the one mind as being Dr. Dossie's book, One Mind. He also mentions Steve Taylor's book on spiritual science. He mentions our book on living in a mindful universe. And he mentions a paper by Bernardo Castro. I think it's from Journal of Consciousness Studies in 2018, but the paper is entitled The Universe in Consciousness. And of course, I would also add Pim Van Lommel's book, uh, Consciousness Beyond Life. It's an extraordinarily rich uh, kind of uh, pr presentation of that scientific argument for the one mind and, and really the brain as a filter. Uh, and I'd say this is where the world is headed, is to this deeper understanding that really looks at that mental layer of the universe which I would say is simply a layer of information integration and assimilation to which we have access as sentient beings. But it goes beyond, it's non-local and it's not limited in time to any now. That's why that mental layer is so uh, 
important for our understanding. And for me, the best way to connect with that in the current era is through meditation. And I use a form of binaural beat brainwave entrainment because I, I found two years post coma that I had to explore consciousness if I was come to, gonna come to any kind of deeper understanding of my experience. And that demanded meditation. And for me to find binaural beats as a way of basically oscillating circuits in the lower brainstem that set our conscious awareness free from this illusion of here now and sense of self, it's a very powerful modality. And for people who wanna learn more about that meditative technique, I would simply steer them to sacredacoustics.com. Good. And we'll full disclosure, that, that is the website of my partner, Karen Newell, who is also the co-author of Living in a Mindful Universe. But I'm a giant fan of uh, binaural beat brainwave entrainment. I meditate an hour or two a day, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been a tremendous benefit in my life. Very interesting. Uh, what I was going to say about one mind is that the it's it's almost as if the the way psychology was developing at the end of the last 19th century um as we're finally catching up with that because you would go back for instance to emerson's essays and i have my grandmother's copy on the shelf here he wrote a book called the o sorry an essay called the oversoul and and this is an expression of that very one mind and you get the same thinking coming through in ralph waldo trine uh, in thomas troward and in charles harnell the whole new thought movement um, and the universal mind is an absolute premise of this whole outlook. Well, absolutely. And we make a very strong argument for that one mind in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, through what we call consilience. Consilience is simply the notion that if you look at a very deep and challenging issue, and in this uh, example, that would be consciousness. And given that the only thing any human being has ever known is the inside of their own consciousness, we should realize that's a very important thing to, uh, to understand more deeply. Uh, but with uh, consilience in addressing consciousness, you have many different avenues that all suggest this primacy of the one mind. It begins, for example, with quantum physics. As many of us are well aware, you know, uh, the founding fathers, Wolfgang uh, Pauli and Erwin uh, Schrodinger, Max Planck, uh, Pasquale Jordan, uh, Eugene Wigner, uh, many others made statements. Uh, they realized in studying subatomic particles in the material world around us, they came to realize that none of that really exists independently of the mind of the observer. And that was a very important observation that's taken more than a century uh, for the scientific to actually yeah. to work its way through and come to a deeper understanding. But that primacy of consciousness, that um, is absolutely a central part of, of quantum physics is, is kind of a starting point for consilience, but then move beyond that. For example, in neuroscience, um, the hard problem of consciousness as defined by David Chalmers, the Australian philosopher in the mid 1990s, has become an impossible problem for materialists to try and take the physical matter of the brain and translate that into phenomenal experience. And then in this discussion of consilience, you move to philosophy of mind and the, the binding problem. I mean, the apparent unity of consciousness within an individual mind is very difficult to explain if you're trying to pretend as a materialist neuroscientist that it's multiple population of neuronal networks contributing each of their pieces, you know, what you see, what you hear, what you think, what you remember, your emotional state, uh, body awareness, uh, you know, surround awareness, 
how come all this is so unified? And that is a really deep mystery uh, from that perspective of materialist science that really has no explanation within materialism, but is fully explained with idealism as your starting point. And then contributing heavily to this notion of consilience is all the evidence in parapsychology for non-local consciousness the evidence for telepathy, the evidence for remote viewing. I mean, one of the most proven fields in the history of statistics and science, uh, in spite of the fact that Wikipedia tries to claim that, that remote viewing is pseudoscience. Well, I would say Wikipedia is pseudoscience. It is. It is. Jessica Ott, yeah. the president of the American Statistical Association in 2015, gave an address on uh, where she covered her work in precognition and remote viewing, saying that the statistical evidence was clear as a bell. You know, these are beyond reasonable doubt, real effects. Uh, and then we move beyond remote viewing uh, to things like psychokinesis, people's ability to manipulate matter with their mind, which has been studied in the laboratory. Um, also, all the evidence for near-death, shared death experiences, uh, deathbed communications, deathbed visions, uh, after-death communications, a very strong and, and prominent uh, way that most people come into knowing of the reality of the spiritual realm and that souls of departed loved ones are still there. And then, of course, you have that tremendous literature out of UVA and other places on reincarnation, past life memories in children, suggestive reincarnation. When you read, you know, 1,700 solved cases, that is where they actually found the prior uh, person. And remember that those studies of more than 2,500 cases have been carried out since the 1960s, so long before the internet. But all that evidence for past life memories in children that, that absolutely shows some form of our soul coming back in different bodies, you know, but maintaining a set of memories and a sense of personality. I mean, all of this adds up to a tremendous sense of the primacy of mind. And when you use filter theory, which as you point out, was advocated way back there at the turn of the 19th to 20th century, William James, F.C.S. Schiller, Henri Bergson in France, Frederick Meyer in England. Uh, I mean, tremendous workers. Um, and of course, uh, William James in the U.S., uh, the father of American psychology. All of these investigators talked about filter theory and this kind of notion of that primordial mind. And that's something that we bring back to life in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And I know the really heavy scientific work out of UVA from Ed Kelly. And I highly recommend his trilogy of books to anyone yes. who has a deep scientific interest. That would be Irreducible Mind from 2007, Beyond Physicalism 2015, and then in 2021, uh, Consciousness Unbound. I mean, Ed Kelly has edited those books. They are masterpieces in elucidating the modern scientific argument for really, uh, as Ed Kelly concludes towards the end of that third book, uh, evolutionary panentheism, which I would say is just an idealism that fully acknowledges the reality of that God force, uh, which so many NDEers, you know, have experienced firsthand. Not, you know, becoming God, but realizing that overlap and that God force is at the very source of our conscious awareness. So all of this can be very uh, liberating and illuminating for society at large, but sad truth be told, even with all those big tuition dollars people are paying for the education these days, most major academic centers are not yet up to speed on a lot of this advanced knowledge of 
the mind-brain question and the nature of consciousness. So the revolution's coming very rapidly, but it still has a lot of penetration into the world at large. It does. And you've preempted, in a sense, my next question, which was about books that have shaped your life and thinking. You've mentioned those three from Ed Kelly, which I, I absolutely agree are a required reading, especially for people who should be reading them but don't even know they exist. Right. And then you mentioned Larry Dossey and Pim Van Lommel. Any other books that, that um, you'd like to, to mention which have had a formative influence, Eben? Well, I think those uh, by far have been some of the most important. And of course, so in Living in a Mindful Universe, we really try to consolidate a lot of that with our own kind of thinking about how to organize this. Um, I mean, I, can, I just would recommend to anyone, uh, also Dean Radin's books. I think Dean Radin has done a fantastic job. Uh, his most recent book, Real Magic, uh, is a very good uh, book and uh, that, that helps to clarify all this. And also his earlier work, he works for the Institute of Noetic Sciences uh, out in California. And I would say that those uh, really, and, and if you use uvadops.org as a website, that has tremendous uh, scientific paper and book resources. That's the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies. Uh, and of course, I would also highly recommend, because I think it's especially important in this scientific era, is the work of Bernardo Castro. Bernardo was an endorser of our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. Yeah. Uh, I've uh, had many communications with Bernardo over the years. I think he's a brilliant mind. I think in many ways, Bernardo has uh, uh, helped to take kind of the modern scientific uh, mind to the next level. I recommend highly all of his books, but especially The Idea of the World, which came out a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago. Uh, and also just Bernardo Castrop with a K.com is an incredibly good resource for people who want to gain a deeper understanding of this. And in fact, I usually give out those websites and of course, scientificandmedical.net and galileocommission.org. I, I feel that within, within those kind of websites and, and books, that uh, people can get well up to speed. And I would only recommend beyond these recommendations on my website, ebenalexander.com, I have a recommended reading list with more than a hundred uh, links to uh, uh, various papers, books that I think are important. It's all categorized. Uh, and if you go to ebenalexander.com, you can explore that reading list with a lot of the hot links that take you directly to the important papers. Uh, and I would recommend people use that as a resource uh, mm. to try and navigate because uh, there's an extraordinary amount of material out there. But, uh, you know, separating wheat from chaff is important. And very, uh, I think we're, we're yes, very interesting. I'll create a link to that from the Galileo Commission website, because I think you know, people are always looking for you know, what are the key references. Then, um, Eben, coming out, how, how does your understanding of consciousness influence the way you live your life? I imagine that's changed, obviously, since 2008. Well, it's changed completely, and, and it didn't happen just at the NDE. In fact, when I came back from the NDE, my amnesia was still very much in effect, so I didn't even recognize loved ones at the bedside, my mother, my sisters, my sons, when I first woke up. Uh, that just shows you how badly damaged my brain was. But my mind was coming back rapidly, words and language over hours and days, childhood memories over weeks, and all my semantic knowledge over about two months. 
And then there was just this deep mystery of trying to understand it all. Initially, I thought it had to be a vast hallucination, but that was before I learned how ill I was and that my brain was in no shape to create a hallucination. And that's when I had to dive much deeper. And of course, much of that is told uh, in the book Proof of Heaven, which really ends four months after my coma with that tremendous revelation about my spiritual guide during the journey. But then a lot of the rest of the story, because there's much more to my own personal growth and evolution that involves work with a lot of scientists and other experiencers, physicians around the world. And a lot of that story is told in Living in a Mindful Universe. But it's been, you know, that all happened when I was 54 years old, my coma. And now 14 years later, uh, I've made a lot of progress in my mind in coming to a deeper understanding of all this. But it really all hinges on that notion of primordial mind and an admission that at those deep spiritual levels, we are all united through the forces of unconditional love, kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance. And in many ways, I would say that the troubles that our world faces today in so many ways are due to this false sense of separation inherent in materialist thought. And I would also uh, attribute a false or erroneous interpretation of Darwinian evolution in the mid-20th century for leading us down this pathway of thinking competition, survival of the fittest, as opposed to realizing, as most biologists will tell you, that success in the biological kingdom is always due to collaboration and cooperation. And that is something we're coming to realize more strongly in the current era. And I would say this false sense of separation, inherent materialism, has allowed egos out of control, corporate greed, uh, climate change due to the energy industry's greed, et cetera. And we really need to wake up and take responsibility for our planet. And that's why I think that the current awakening, which we are discussing uh, here and now about this one mind and how we're all in this together, uh, how the, in, in essence, the life review of a near-death experiencer, and these, these have been reported going back thousands of years across all belief systems, but they're basically the golden rule written into the fabric of the universe. Treat others as you would like to be treated, because in the life review, which has kind of a neutral background other than the fact that that infinitely loving God presence is all around, but we go through a life review and we wish witness uh, our actions on others from their perspective in many ways. So I think that is the important lesson, that we're truly all in this together and to live to our highest potentials as sentient beings, as homo sapiens, if we want to truly earn the name wise, which is what sapiens means, uh, we need to expand our awareness to understanding how we are truly all in this together. We do share that mental space, that kind of emotional engagement space. And this is where we need to kind of come together and realize we're here to take care of each other and take care of the least, the last, and the lost. And that certainly includes taking care of this planet and the thousands, if not millions of species that we are threatening with extinction due to our pollution, toxicity, plastic pollution, and to climate change, to our uh, horrible addiction to fossil fuels, burning carbon in any form is increasing carbon dioxide, global warming, the methane escape in that process is also contributing mightily. We really need to wake up. And uh, for me, this is all a very optimistic message because I think we are waking up. I think we can truly take this planet back. And in that, what I mean is give nature and this planet uh, the beauty and uh, the chance to live that instead of completely, uh, you know, raping and pillaging and ripping resources out of the planet, pretending that it is infinite 
Whereas, no, it, we must have sustainable resources. And that means we've got to quit taking so much from planet Earth and start planting trees and taking care of nature. Uh, this is really incumbent on all of us uh, as part of this global awakening. No, I couldn't agree more. Interestingly, one of the books I've just been reviewing is called Mutual Aid, The Other Law of the Jungle. And so it argues that we need to remember that this competition and, and the dog eats dog is only one law of the jungle, but the other law of the jungle is exactly what you've been talking about, which is right. caring for each other and, and mutuality, not top-down charity and philanthropy. It's, it's looking after each other in a more horizontal community way. Exactly. I mean, that's just acknowledging that we're all, you know, sharing this one mind, sharing the dream of the one mind. And even though it presents us with this apparent drama of separation, uh, once we know that that's only kind of a trick of the ego to kind of get us engaged uh, in this life, but realize that we're much grander beings than that. That's why, in fact, a theme of, of one of the courses that Karen and I are offering now on the Shift Network is welcome to your forever life. This is really admitting that modern science is supporting this notion of the soul. Uh, and we, you know, I say often we have program forgetting. So those doctors who have examined past life memories in children will tell you, you need to harvest those memories before age five or six. Yeah, because they're they natural processes that cover them over. That's why as adults, most of us don't remember those past lives, but they can be uncovered, say in an NDE, in hypnotic regression, in meditation. Oh, there are many ways that we can come into knowing about our past lives. That's this whole world of transpersonal psychology is all about that work that began with Carl Jung and his recognitions of kind of the grander aspects of self and that primordial mind, that collective unconscious and the role of synchronicities. And then you have the work of Stan Groff, uh, holotrophic breath work. And he did a lot of work with psychedelics early on when they were still legal. And then, of course, Brian Weiss, Michael Newton, uh, Robert Schwartz, and others who have all talked about kind of soul contracts, this bigger view of self, acknowledging our past lives and how that contributes to our understanding of the issues of this life and helps us to come to a, a better resolution and a transformation, a growth of soul when we realize that the ingredients of our, of our kind of soul journey uh, involve other lifetimes that we've lived. And the more we can become aware of that, uh, bring that into our current understanding, uh, the more we can uh, kind of expand our notion of relationship with the universe and really help each other and ourselves to come into the lives that we uh, really came here to determine and to guide our transformation in the evolution of all consciousness. And to remember at a deeper level. Uh, Eben, we're yes. coming to the end um, of, of this interview, wonderful interview. Um, so I've got another couple of questions to ask you. And sure. the first one is, do you have a proverb you live by or a favorite quote? Well, I would say what I've learned to live by since my NDE is love of everywhere, everyone, as much as I can, and just share that love. That's kind of the, the general principle that I think is a, a beautiful guiding principle that is very strongly supported by all this. In terms of a quote, uh, you know, I often quote Einstein, and, and you know, in, in, in our books, uh, uh, all three of the books, we've uh, provided a lot of quotes, but I would say for this discussion, probably the most pertinent is a quote from uh, Werner Heisenberg. And he said, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will lead you towards atheism. But at the bottom of the glass, 
God is waiting for you. And I think that is probably one of the most profound and beautiful quotes to exemplify the importance of quantum physics and what it tells us. What quantum physics does is it takes us out of this bleak and paltry fiction of materialism that might pretend that there is even a whole predeterminism to the universe and that we, we have no free will or choice. And what quantum physics points out to us is absolutely we have free will and it totally guides the emergence of our apparent reality in this universe. And, wonderful, and I quote. do that deeply. So it's a, it's a great quote as far as I'm concerned. And really, I think this world will come become a lot healthier as we come to realize that loving force, that infinite uh, God force, independent of any kind of religious belief, uh, this is based solely on modern human experience uh, in this era where we're trying to ex explain scientifically how brain and mind relate in the nature of reality. All of this is very pertinent to helping us grow into an acknowledgement about this togetherness and that the universe is a friendly place. Uh, you know, at those deepest levels, you don't find a battle between good and evil. You just find that pure God force that is so reassuring to indie ears. And that's what we need to resurrect in this world is an assurance and a trust in the universe that if we do our best to try and manifest that love and kindness and compassion for others, that the universe will pour that love and beneficence all over us. And we will come to the world that we came here to create in the first place. Indeed. So, Eben, I'm, is there any advice you'd give to your younger self from where you are now? I think that the best advice would be to uh, just look at everyone out there is doing their best, trying their best to live this dream of the one mind, and that let's all just help each other. Let's help grow into this together, uh, leave no soul behind, and uh, the power is within us to change this world, literally within a generation, to one that is far more favorable to the future for billions of unborn uh, beings, not just humans, but uh, all of our fellow creatures on this planet will greatly appreciate the awakening that we can do now in uh, helping humanity come to an understanding of the presence of this uh, tremendous uh, loving spiritual force at the core of the universe, no matter what you want to call it. Uh, it's absolutely real. And we all find that out uh, when we leave our physical bodies uh, once and for all at the time of death. But we can come to know it much more fully through meditation, through coming into this uh, awakening of humanity that's uh, apparent and trying to live it to our best ability to help ourselves and others. Well, thank you so much, Eben. That's a good advice for anybody, I think. And, and I've really enjoyed your um, extraordinarily articulate expression of you know, the perennial philosophy, the importance of love. And this is such an important message to get out there. So thank you for all you're doing. And uh, it was a pleasure to have you with me. Well, thank you, David. It's great talking with you as always. And I look forward to the next time. Thank you.